Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on the issues driving the public conversation. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Steve Hayes, the Editor and CEO of The Dispatch, a US-based digital media company that has distinguished itself in its four short years in publication for the quality of its journalism and its model of moderate, sensible conservatism. I should say that I've been a subscriber since the launch and regularly consume its mix of newsletters, commentary, and podcasts. I'm grateful to speak with him as part of our ongoing Future of News series to get his perspective on the state of the industry, the evolution of conservative journalism, and how the dispatch fits within these trends. Steve, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. No, thanks for having me. I'm excited to, I'm excited to do this. Uh, Steve, you're a journalist journalist. You went to journalism school. You thrive on the process of interviews and information collection and presenting facts according to journalistic principles. You're methodical at a time that seems to preference other priorities like speed or partisanship or whatever. Before we get to the dispatch and the industry and all the rest, I want to ask you about the craft of journalism itself. Sure. How has it changed since you got into the business more than 20 years ago? The emphasis on speed is sort of the first and most obvious point. I mean, the speed of information is just extraordinary. I, I Went to journalism school, graduated from journalism school, grad school in 1999. So really, you know, the internet was around, but we the social media wasn't what it is today. And while I would say we were witnessing, we were sort of early stages of the acceleration of information, we weren't yet seeing information at hyperspeed the way that we are seeing now. And I think that's had effects on on journalism in both ways that are liberating and somewhat strengthening and certainly many many negative effects as well journalists today there's a premium on speed and opinion and bold takes and standing out I mean, just the the proliferation of you know, information sources, I wouldn't call them news sources necessarily but information sources people who are at least posturing like journalists has been extraordinary. You know, you have a in your pocket every day, you have the, the equivalent of a small college library, endless, just, just goes on forever. But it's not necessarily the case that with that access to all of that additional information is understanding and context and depth. And that's, I think, been the, the biggest change is that people seem, even people who are practicing journalists, um, and especially people who are sort of posing as journalists, are, are so interested in breaking through that the kind of slow and careful, um, methodical process of gathering facts and creating context and, and writing for readers has been lost in this sea of shouting. The Dispatch acknowledges that its journalism is informed by conservative principles. Talk about what that means. What does it signal about how you and the Dispatch other journalists think about questions of objectivity and viewpoint neutrality? What, in other words, Steve, is the difference between partisan journalism and journalism that is informed by certain principles? Yeah, it's a great question. And you've made the crucial distinction in the framing of the question, frankly. What's happened in the U.S. media in particular is this kind of shift at first, I think, somewhat slowly and then pretty dramatically over the past, say, decade towards partisan journalism. And by partisan, I, I really do mean Democrat and Republican. You know, I'm of the view that the the 
media in the United States, the mainstream media, the big outlets, the the, the places, the establishment media that has sort of shaped the, the national debate in the country for the past 50, 75 years, leans left. And, and for a long time did so sort of unapologetically, but not very self-consciously. And so there was a reason that people who were self-identified conservatives, myself included, were skeptical of what we were getting from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the networks. Um, and there was a sense, and I think an accurate one, that um, conservatives weren't treated fairly, weren't getting an accurate story, um, not because journalists went into journalism because they were sort of, you know, Democratic Party activists in disguise. It was just much more that the people who chose to go into journalism came to journalism with a progressive or liberal worldview. And I don't mean classical liberal. I mean sort of old school FDR liberal, statist, ex expansionist government worldview. Yeah, I went to, to Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism, as I said, in the late 1990s. And roughly 250 students in my class at Columbia. And I was a conservative. And there was one other conservative in my class at Columbia. Now, that doesn't mean that the other 248 were all sort of raging activist leftists, but certainly the vast majority of them came to the practice of journalism with that kind of a worldview. And I think it was evident, evident in the kind of work, even the ones who were intellectually honest and sort of self-aware. So taking all of that into consideration, you know, when I got out of journalism, I went to school for uh, the Weekly Standard magazine. It was a center-right conservative magazine. Uh, some people described it as a neoconservative magazine, uh, where I was a reporter for 20 years. And we were sort of open about the fact that that we were conservative, that we approached the world in a certain way. But, and then this is a really important but, we were very serious about facts and reporting. And I, I worked there for, as I say, almost 20 years. Uh, the magazine was shuttered by its owner in 20, December of 2018. And we launched the dispatch a little less than a year later and brought to the dispatch some of the, that experience and some of those same values. The, the, the interesting question about conservative journalism today is a conservative means today something very different than it did when I went into conservative journalism at the Weekly Standard in the, the late 90s, early aughts. You know, I think most people, when they hear conservative today, uh, think of the modern Republican Party and Donald Trump. And I think in in some ways, I mean, certainly Donald Trump isn't the kind of conservative that I am. I'm a classical liberal. I'm anti-authoritarian. I believe in free markets. I, I believe in democracy. I believe in truth and facts. So we've been a we've had internal debates, to be just blunt and, and candid about it, about whether we should continue to use the word conservative. And, you know, on, on some days we say, I don't know, it's been sort of co-opted and corrupted. Why would we not still use it? Because that's an accurate description of the way that we've thought of ourselves over all these years. On the other hand, if it is the case that so many people might misunderstand what it is that we're trying to do, um, we often revert to, to describing ourselves as, as center-right. The last, last point in, in a direct answer to your question, we're not carrying water for anybody. We are certainly not carrying water for the Republican Party. We're critical of Republicans. We're critical of Democrats. We praise Democrats when Democrats do good things. We praise Republicans when Republicans do good things. But uh, in, in a in a media environment with, where so many outlets on left, and I would say, unfortunately, particularly on the right, have become sort of substitutes for partisan organizations where they're really doing the heavy lifting for a political figure like Donald Trump or a political party like the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. We, it's really important to us to stand apart from that and to say our, our, the thing that we treasure most is truth, facts, reporting, and intellectual honesty. And I, I like to think that in, in the four short years we've been around, we've, we've been able to, to do that. I mean, people can disagree with us. They can argue with us. You know, we can have good and hopefully fruitful back and forth with people on all, all parts of the political spectrum. But I do think that we've earned a, a reputation. It's important to us that 
people think that they're getting a fair shot with us, that, that we're not taking cheap shots, that we're not carrying partisan baggage, and that people can come to us and expect to and, and, and receive an intellectually honest product. Steve, we'll come back to some of those choices that you've made about the way you think of yourself and the work that you do later in the conversation. But if you'll indulge me, I just want to stay on conservative journalism a bit longer because it's, it's in some ways become a long way since you entered the industry and it's arguably regressed in some ways. When you started, there weren't many options for conservatives. As you said, the, the weekly standard where you spent a good part of your career was for some time a, a manna for many of us on the right. There's since been an explosion of conservative outlets and voices, which in theory is a good thing, but they've not all necessarily adhered to some of the principles that we started talking about. What's the state of conservative journalism in your mind? I, I don't think it's in good shape, to be, to be blunt about it, for some of the reasons that, that I, I just mentioned. I mean, I, I do think it's the case that you know, in, in this current media environment, where if we take a if we take a, a step back, and if you'll indulge me for for a <laughs> minute to 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 help us understand sort of why we're at this point, I mean, as you as you saw the speed of information accelerate, th there was a moment, and it was a pretty long moment, where media outlets just started putting out information for free. Everybody put out information for free, and you had news consumers who came to expect that that's what that's how we were going to get our information we, were, we weren't going to pay for it and at that point what became the most important sort of the currency of these news outlets who were losing revenue uh, because classified advertising was going away i mean there's a long history it was harder and harder to, to earn money in the news industry so many of them had to, to choose to monetize scale or monetize eyeballs is sort of the, the slang that, that we've used. And, you know, if you had, you, you needed to get millions and millions of clicks on your website and you'd get a fraction of a, a penny every time you did it. And that's how you would make money. And it was one of the reasons that, you know, people put so much emphasis, people in our, our industry put so much emphasis on traffic um, in, in the, you know, the late aughts and, and in the 2010s, it became, it became the most important thing. And unfortunately, what I think that that led to was a lot of really crappy journalism. The, the things that people did to get that traffic range from sort of outrage bait headlines. They knew that people would click on things that made them angry. So they gave people things that made them angry. People would post headlines that didn't really bear any resemblance to the content that they were serving people. In some cases, people began to create content that they knew would be the kind of things that people wanted to consume, you know, this, this, this outrage and anger stuff. And as we saw that evolution, facts and, and the truth became less important, frankly, to most people practicing Journalism, and I, and again, I, I lament to say that this is more true on the right than the left, unfortunately, at least in the United States. And you had media outlets that, as they rose in prominence and had more people consuming their their information, really would be publishing things that, you know, where facts were almost optional. And you had the rise of these conspiracy sites like Infowars and Gateway Pundit was this blogger in St. Louis for a while who you know, built out a staff and he would pump out these incredibly sensationalistic stories that as often as not just fell apart with even the lightest scrutiny. But people kept going because people, many news consumers began to, to grow conditioned to seeking affirmation from in, in their news consumption rather than information, rather than knowledge, depth and context. And as conservatives, you know, we, we came to this new world. I mean, you, you said it earlier, the, the, the proliferation of, of outlets huge upside. I gave an entire speech at Washington College in, in the state of Maryland about these changes at the very beginning. And I was so excited. I thought this was, for, for conservatives who had sort of had to suffer through what I think was the ideological bias of the mainstream media forever, for decades, this was our moment. This was the opening. And unfortunately, I think what we've seen is so many conservative outlets 
because they wanted to monetize, they set up this alternative set of media outlets and then quickly decided that they were going to traffic in conspiracies and the kind of crazy stuff that that we see too often from many of them. And in particular, have seen since the rise of Donald Trump, who was sort of the, you know, one of the original real conspiracy theorists. And so we're at this point now where you have so many outlets on the right that are just trafficking in, in conspiracies and feeding people what they think they want. The the one thing I will say that has me slightly encouraged um, is that we have seen a, a, a bit of a reversion. You have other places beyond just the dispatch that are saying, you know what, let's slow this all down. Let's take some time. Let's get back to reporting. Um, and I think that's a very positive development. And the other thing, while on the one hand, I don't like to see any media outlets. I, I, I like journalists and I like journalism. So I, I, in my gut, I want everybody to succeed. But you are su seeing some of these media outlets that made big names trafficking in, in this kind of you know, crap journalism or or conspiracy theory, losing audience share in a pretty dramatic way. And and that I think is positive for the overall sort of news ecosystem. Let me ask a follow-up question. How much can we attribute some of the crazy stuff on today's political right to the conservative media? And what is the feedback loop between them? A lot, unfortunately. You know, I, and maybe maybe I can get to the point by by sort of telling a story. So in addition to my work at the Weekly Standard, I worked at Fox News, um, obviously one of the really the, the behemoth, the, 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 the biggest of the conservative media outlets. And, you know, Fox News, when it was founded in the mid 1990s by Britt Hume, who was a seasoned professional journalist, ABC News and, and others came on the scene basically to help provide balance, to say, look, if, if you've been getting your information from the mainstream media all these years, there's another perspective out there. And at the very least, we're going to treat it fairly. And and I had Britt Hume, I was running a journalism program at Georgetown University in the 1990s. And I had Britt Hume come and speak to my students at the time about launching Fox News. And he said, you know, what we're not going to do is we're not going to just become sort of as biased to the right as we think so many of these other outlets are to the left. So hold that thought. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to Fox News in, in 2010 and was there for the better part of 11 years, almost 12 years. And, you know, at the beginning of that time, I was on a, a panel on a 6 p.m. show. It was sort of the main news show. The, the, the hard news show was an hour-long show called Special Report, hosted by Brett Baer, who's actually a college roommate of mine, a longtime friend, uh, and a terrific journalist. And we did a panel for about 20 minutes at the end of the show. And it was a, a terrific panel. And I say that not because I was on it, but in spite of my presence on the panel, but we had some of, really some of America's top journalists, reporters, analysts, commentators like Charles Crownhammer. And, you know, the exchanges there, I thought were, were rich and deep and, and textured. And for so long, I thought Fox was filling this void and a much, a much needed media outlet to come and sort of counter some of what we, we'd gotten for so long from the mainstream media. Roger Ailes, who was one of the founders of, of Fox uh, and a problematic man in, in, in many ways, now passed, used to say that the, the genius of Fox was discovering a niche audience in the United States, and it was half the country. And, you know, while he said it as a joke and it, it was funny, I mean, he, he really hit on something there. And that was one of the reasons that Fox grew to the prominence that it that it has today. You know, Fox cared a lot about journalism and the quality of the journalism and the reporting in those early days. And even, I would say, through the 2010s, while Roger Ailes was around, he was a partisan guy and prone to, to in, engaging in some conspiracies conspiracy theories himself, but he, he insisted on the quality of the news product. And he made these distinctions between the news product and the opinion side. And he kept sort of a tight rein on, on the opinion side. They could push the envelope a bit, but there was always, there was, a, there was an edge that they couldn't go beyond. And unfortunately, what, what we've seen with Fox, I think is reflective of the broader sort of conservative media Many of those the, the standards have gone away. They're, they're just not 
checking these things anymore. And you've watched what used to be, you know, mostly serious, engaging debates. Primetime on Fox was always a little, should we say, edgier than than the rest of the the news day. But, you know, I, I saw a clip the other day of, of Jesse Waters on Fox who had a psychic on. And, you know, she was pulling, I don't know if they're tarot cards, this is not my world, but she was pulling a card and, you know, Donald Trump was uh, pulled the, the Grim Reaper card and this was supposed to tell us. And, you know, I don't think, I don't think he took it that seriously, but sort of a, a worthless panel. You, you had another segment where one of his guests suggested that Taylor Swift was involved in a, in a, a psyop, psychological operations to help get Joe Biden elected. And some of these are kind of like, they know they're in on the joke, but you have people like Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram, and you certainly saw this in the the documents that emerged with the big Fox lawsuit against Dominion, where you had these hosts acknowledging, in effect, that some of what they were saying to their audience wasn't true. Like they knew it was exaggerated, at least that that they understood. They were critical of Donald Trump in private, for instance, were worried about January 6th, but then they would go on air and boost Donald Trump and, you know, talk around January 6th. And so I think in Fox, this is a very long answer to your question. I think you see in in the evolution at Fox sort of what's happened to conservative movement, I mean, conservative journalism overall, and it's not in a great place if I'm if I'm being blunt about it. I want to turn to the broader industry now. You grew up in Wisconsin. I checked before our conversation. The state still has a large number of news media outlets, including the Beaver Dam Daily Citizen, the Catholic Herald, the Shabogan Sun newspaper, and so on. But like many other states, Wisconsin's journalism industry has seen major layoffs, closures, etc. What in your mind are some of the key business challenges facing the sector? And do you think local news in secondary and rural communities can still be a sustainable business? I do. I'll just answer your your last question first. I do think that local news can can be a sustainable business. And I say that in part because I'm seeing it. I'm I'm watching it in places around the country and around the world. And I'll give you a couple of examples. The 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 former economics editor and writer for the Weekly Standard is a guy named Tony Messia. And Tony moved, he, he lived in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. He's lived there for a long time. That's where he worked when he was with us. But after the Weekly Standard was shuttered by our owner, Tony started something called the Charlotte Ledger. And he describes it as a quote unquote businessy newsletter about Charlotte. And it is that, but it sort of goes beyond, it reaches beyond business, but it does real reporting hmm. about what's happening in Charlotte. And I think I read it regularly. I think it's relevant not only to Charlotte business leaders, but if you live in Charlotte, it reports on the school system, reports on the transit system, the sports teams. If you want to know what's going on in Charlotte, North Carolina, you can't do better than this newsletter. And it's a small staff. I think he's got three, four, five people, some of them part-time, some of them full-time. And he regularly scoops the local, the, the Charlotte Observer, which is the big paper there, and the local news stations, and it's working. And he's he's building the business by doing it. There's a a, a guy, I'm gonna forget his name now, Yoshi Herman, I want to say, in England, who started these similar kinds of publications. They start they launched these on the newsletter platform called Substack, which is also where the Dispatch launched four years ago. And he has built some terrific local news sites newsletters largely not entirely but but largely that do coverage that's as good or better than some of the old establishment media outlets in those places now those are in cities and your question asked about local journalism broadly but also in rural areas i think it's harder it's much harder there's no silver bullet for you know the news deserts in the United States and and North America and elsewhere around the world, because it's it costs a lot of money to do good journalism. That's you can't get around that fact. And if you're trying to keep up with the 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 pace of information, the speed of information, sort of everywhere around the world, and even in your 
areas, you're just not going to be able to do the kind of quality journalism that I think those places need and deserve. So the economics are much harder in rural areas. Is there room for nonprofit journalism? Certainly there are places doing that. There's a, a consortium of publishers here in the U.S. The acronym is LION. It's a consortium of local news publishers. They they provide tips to one another about how to make the businesses work. You have big sort of platform behemoths giving grants to, to local news. Google News Initiative is doing some of that. Craig Newmark, who started Craigslist and many people point to as the guy who killed classified advertising, he does a lot of gifts to nonprofit news. I think the jury's sort of out on how sustainable local nonprofit sites are, but I'm encouraged by some of the experimentation and I'm very encouraged by the success of places that are doing good news, real reporting like the Charlotte Ledger and these others. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. You mentioned the rise of so-called news deserts in, in different communities. I've seen one statistic that 225 counties in the United States no longer have a local newspaper. But my sense, Steve, is that it hasn't yet reached the same level of political attention as it has in Canada where it's a major issue with the government introducing various policies to support the sector. What do you think might be behind the different responses between our two countries? You know, in the United States, you've had from the right sort of a long-term skepticism about government in media. You've had critics, myself included, of the government funding of national public radio, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which supports local news outlets and and television programming as well as some some national ones my wife uh, used to work at the corporation for public broadcasting commissioning documentaries and i always joked with her that if i were successful in my political arguments i'd have her her job zeroed out <laughs> which which was i thought was really funny she maybe thought it was slightly less less funny but there's been sort of widespread skepticism of that because you know, I, I guess in my view, the government isn't isn't a disinterested actor here. I mean, a lot of the the reasons people lament the disappearance of local journalism is because you don't have places that are holding governments at the local and state levels accountable. And we've certainly seen the ill effects of of that here in the United States. But I don't know what can I can I flip the question around and ask you what. What's your explanation for the difference between Canada and the U.S. on that? I'm interested in the in the question. Yeah, I would say probably two things. One, maybe three, actually. First is political culture. We just have a, a greater predisposition to uh, state involvement in different parts right. of our economy. Two, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation has been a key part of our news media landscape really since the middle of the, the 20th century. So we just have a, even within news itself, have been kind of socialized to see a greater role for, for the state. And then the third factor, I think, probably has to do with the state of American political polarization and the serious unlikelihood that the state could ever adjudicate to anyone's satisfaction what is a journalistic organization in order to determine whether it is eligible for public resources. It's already a source of tension here. But if you shot through American politics through that process, it, it's impossible. It's hard to see a, a scenario where that could ever be done without it becoming. I mean, in fact, I, I think the opposite would almost certainly happen. That, that is to yeah, say, it would kind of un, the process would un, undo itself. I think that makes sense. I, I, you know, thinking thinking about a little bit about the the state of state backed journalism here in the United States. I mean. I'm sort of of two minds because 
certainly philosophically, I just don't think the government should be in the news business. I mean, the, the, the markets can handle the news business. Markets have handled the news business in the past. There are lots of investing in, in news companies, even today, as people are trying to figure out where the disruptions are going to lead and what's sustainable and what's not. And in those areas, as a general rule, I believe markets are are, are good. I will say that as we've gone through the past sort of seven, eight years of political tumult here in the United States, and particularly with the problems that we've seen, you know, in conservative media, but also in the media generally, where you had media companies that kind of understood that some of the dis distortive effects of Donald Trump's candidacy and, and later presidency would likely have long-term repercussions on the American polity, on the way we do politics in America, nonetheless paid sort of disproportionate attention to, to any and everything that Donald Trump did because they knew it would get eyeballs. So, and you you had famously the, the head of one of our networks, Les Moonves, who used to run CBS News, say something, I won't get the quote exactly right, but something like, you know, we know Donald Trump is bad for the country, but he's very good for CBS. And, and if you look at the bottom line of the news companies here in the United States, that was undoubtedly true. He was, he was right about this. And I found myself spending more and more time taking in news from places like NPR. Our public broadcasting system has a show, an hour-long news show here called The News Hour. I think it leans to the left. But it's very high quality and you you come away with it actually learning something and it's more than people shout, shouting at one another. So uh, I, I do think the news product makes the argument, makes a better argument these days for people who would say, yeah, well, you know, it might be worth the kind of state involvement that the conservatives don't like. I'm not I'm not there. I'm not at the point where I would say, OK, great. Let's like let's push a bunch of money towards, you know, government's backed news organizations here in the United States for the reasons you suggest. I think the polarization would just give us something else to argue about. Uh, you've been generous with your time, Steve. I just have a, a, a few questions to wrap up with a particular focus on uh, your experience at the, at the dispatch over the past four years. You, you mentioned Substack earlier, the dispatch launched on the platform. Talk about that initial decision and then your subsequent one to start your own site. What were some of the pros and cons of these different approaches? And what's the role of Substack in the future of journalism? Yeah, Substack was a really interesting company. They built a platform that made it really easy for people to to launch their own newsletters, whether it was people who wanted to, to you know, establish news companies like ours or just, you know, Roger down the street who wanted to share his thoughts on mechanical engineering, whatever. And they made it very easy. We knew when we started the dispatch, or at least one of the things that that we built the company around in terms of the business model was a belief in what we called pushed content. So people liked to take in content that was sent to them. And you know, the basic two main categories for us were newsletters and podcasts. Uh, so we wanted to live in people's inboxes and we wanted to to be in their in their ears. And as we explored what possibilities were available to us in order to send people newsletters and to build the company. We heard about Substack, had uh, very for fortunate conversations with their co-founders early, and they made this offer to us and said, in effect, if you'll be our guinea pig, we'll build this custom for you. And it was a no-brainer, probably saved us a couple million bucks. And we loved it. We were there for three years. I just had a call with the one of the the Substack co-founders, neither, not either of the Canadians, two of the co-founders are Canadian. One of them is, is from New Zealand. I talked to the guy from New Zealand yesterday. We're still on great terms with them. I think what they're doing is really interesting and, and smart. We decided to move off because we wanted to pursue other revenue possibilities. We're going to introduce more ads and sponsorships to our model. We're going to do it carefully because we don't want the distortive effects that we've seen elsewhere. And we are not going to try to monetize scale. We are going to stay true to sort of reader revenue and subscriptions or memberships as the the sort of base of our of our revenue picture. But we know that we can supplement it in a responsible way and and we want to. We want to we want to grow the company to allow us to do, you know, what we think is is more good journalism. I think Substack is is here to stay. I think they're doing really interesting work. 
we were one of the first media companies to build on Substack. And they, like I said, they wanted to use us as a, as a guinea pig to help them identify pain points as they grew so that they could attract other media companies. And there are now several other media companies that are doing really good work on Substack. I do think that they've got, there. there's a, a, a another wave of Substack growth likely coming. Mm. And that is with this creator economy. They really hadn't built the platform for people who were influencers in places like Instagram or TikTok or what have you. And they, get, I think, now can can help really grow what they're doing by reaching out to people who have succeeded in places like that, social media, and say, hey, spend a little more time with the people who are following you and we'll give you the place to do it. And you can do video and podcasting now on Substack. It's, I think, I think the future is pretty bright for the company. One of the issues that has come up a lot in these conversations is the strength and weakness of the subscriber model, and in particular, the incentives inherent in it. That is to say that it better aligns and outlets journalism to its audience can create good and bad incentives. How do you balance being responsive to your audience without being captured by it? And is that something that you and the team think a lot about? We think about it all the time. That's that's one of the most important questions as it relates to the way that we that we do our business. So we we did this exercise at the very beginning of the dispatch. I mean, Jonah Goldberg, who's my co-founder, and I spent a lot of time, and Toby Stock, who who you've spoken with before, was our third co-founder and has now gone sort of back into the nonprofit world. The three of us and, and some others that we spoke to before we launched spent a lot of time thinking about these incentives, in part because I had come out of a situation where the Weekly Standard was closed, I think because the owner fell victim to bad incentives and made bad decisions, if I can be blunt about it. They wanted clickbait for a, a, a magazine that was not designed to do clickbait. We were doing real journalism. And we tried to build the company in such a way that would keep us from even being tempted by these incentives. We wrote something that internally we called our manifesto. And Jonah wrote most of it. I, I pitched in. We sort of workshopped it with some, some people. But it was basically, in fact, the, the title of the post, this was our post on the first day that we launched, was What Are We Doing? And, you know, one of the things that, that was important to us was to be as transparent with people as we possibly could, to tell them why we're doing the journalism the way that we're doing it, what we're choosing, why we think this is news, to talk about the business model, to be as open as we possibly could be to give people reason to trust us. And we wrote this manifesto and we didn't, you know, we, we thought of it much more, I think in the moment as our first post, not sort of like, this is what the company is going to live by in perpetuity. And as it turns out, the things that we said to readers there and potential members really do guide the company today on a day-to-day -day basis. And what we did was we boxed ourselves in on purpose. So we said to them, here's how we're going to do journalism. We are going to, yeah, we come from the center right, but we're going to challenge our own assumptions. You're not going to get partisan boosterism. And if you see it, you should call us on it because it's not how we want to operate. We're not going to give you clickbait because we don't care about traffic and volume and we're not trying to monetize that way. We want to provide you with real journalism that involves reporting, that takes our time, that goes a little bit slower. And by joining us and particularly the people who are paying for our journalism, that's what you're signing up for. You know what you're getting and it's going to be this kind of slower journalism. We're, we're not going to do the, the outrage bait. We're not going to yell and scream. And if, if that's why you're coming to us, if you're, just, if you're just coming to us to nod your head along with everything we say, you won't be happy at the dispatch. You, you have to want to be challenged. You have to want us to challenge your assumptions. You have to believe that we'll challenge our own assumptions. And I think because people signed up for those reasons, They've really, really stuck with us. And we use that. We point back to it. If we get if we get an email from somebody who says, Hey, you're 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 too tough on so-and-so. We say, Yeah, well, go read the manifesto. This is what we said we were gonna do. And it's really liberating. And I think keeps us it, to go back to your question, it it puts us in a position where we can afford to say, like, 
hey, this is what we're doing. If you don't like it, fair enough. We're not going to take it personally. But this is what we're doing because this is what we believe. A common characteristic of a lot of digital news outlets, including the hub, is that there tends to be a, a bit of a gap between users or readers and paying subscribers. Without giving away trade secrets, how do you think about that gap in your business? And what are some of the factors that may convert people from being readers to giving you money? <laughs> it's an ongoing challenge. I would say, you know, we were we were very lucky when we launched that, you know, there, there were a lot of people who were, I think, looking for the kind of company that we were building. I still think that there are a lot of people looking for the kind of company that that we've built. Um, getting them to pay for it is increasingly difficult. I mean, I think, you you know, there's a there's sort of a cycle in subscription-based publications or membership-based publications where you go and you get as much of the, the, you know, I hate to talk about our members this way, but low-hanging fruit, the people who you know are going to be very enthusiastic about what you're doing and are likely to stick with you as long as you you keep your promises. And then the, the sort of second level challenge becomes letting other people, making other people aware of what you're doing. And we're at that second stage now. We're approaching 40,000 paying members. We've got a, almost 400,000 free readers. Uh, and, and we're thrilled with the progress that we've made. None of us involved in launching the thing would have ever guessed that we'd have those numbers after four years. But we are more convinced now than ever that both of those numbers should grow significantly. You know, we've had conversations and we've seen data that suggests that in the middle of this political polarization that we're seeing in the United States and with the the level of trust in U.S. media at all time lows, people are looking for places where they they say, I, I'm not sure I agree with you on this, but I, I trust that you're you're making your arguments from an intellectually honest place. And I, I want to understand these issues. And we do a lot of explanatory journalism. And that brings in a lot of people who, who are looking to really understand. They're looking for depth, context, and understanding. And that's been probably the most gratifying thing about being part of building this business is, you know, we, we launched it and we started it and we, we, we were explicit with the people we were asking to invest. We said, you know, we don't expect that this is likely to make you rich or make us rich. If we can sort of, you know, break even or make a penny, we're not nonprofit. We, we're, we are for profit. But if we could make, you know, be in the black by a, a penny a year and do really, really good work, do the kind of work that, you know, both Joan and I, who were around 50 when we launched it, have wanted to do and, and believe in and could give young people a place to do that kind of work, that that would be its own reward, whether it, you know, whether it really took off or not. And we're, it, it, I, you know, I, I don't mean to sound sort of Pollyannish about it, but it has been so incredibly gratifying to see that people do really want it. And, and that now our challenge is making sure more people find out what we're doing. The Dispatch has grown a lot since your launch, including new newsletters, podcasts, and writers. How do you think about growing the business sustainably? Uh, what evidence or factors have in these different instances caused you to be sufficiently confident to launch new journalistic content? We just think there are different, you know, whether it's different writers who who we think write in kind of a dispatchian style, who who have dedicated themselves to to really explaining things and helping people understand, not the kind of journalism that, I mean, you know, certainly some of the things that some of our people write will have the result of making people angry or frustrated about something that we're covering. But that's not the point of the journalism. It's not our people don't sit down and say, like, how can I make people angry today? And, you know, whether it's recruiting people who approach the news the way that that we approach the news or it's people who have subject matter expertise and say, you know, we could write in interesting and compelling ways about science. We're, we're, we're very much in the, in the process of trying to set up a, a science newsletter. And it won't be a newsletter for, for experts. It will be a newsletter that it will be accessible like all of our products are for sort of average news consumers. We think of our, our readers as, and, and our members as smart, sophisticated news consumers who are just busy. They don't have a lot of time to jump from, you know, website to website to website, chasing, chasing anger clicks. 
so we see opportunity for growth in a number of subject areas that we're not currently devoting a newsletter to or a lot of time to science would be one of them. Technology, the interplay between technology and politics is another. We've got a terrific economic newsletter. We had a Capitol Hill newsletter that's sort of on hiatus that we're going to bring back. We think there's there's a ton of room to, to cover different areas of, of, of life in America or North America on, you know, giving people the kind of depth that they don't get that many other places. And, you know, we've been lucky enough to be right in the places that we've, we've taken that bet so far. And we're pretty confident that, that, that we can build from there. Penultimate question. And the dispatch, like the hub, started with the hypothesis that there's an untapped market demand for dispassionate fact-based journalism from a center-right perspective. I recognize, however, that this makes us something of an outlier in the market, as we've discussed. And it's even more complicated in your case because of the overwhelming presence of Donald Trump. Let me ask a two-part question. First, what have the past four years told you about your original hypothesis? And second, are you ever tempted to lean into the powerful market forces in favor of the kind of stuff that works well for less principled or moderate outlets? The direct and uncomplicated answer to your second question is no. We're just not. I mean, look, if this is true of Jonah, um, certainly true of me, and I think true of you know most everybody who, who works at the dispatch, there are ample opportunities to sell out. Like if you want to go make a lot of money doing what we're doing, you could do it. I could probably start a Substack tomorrow that leaned into the kinds of outrage bait that that many people have made a, a living doing. It's just not what I want to do. Jonah and I actually uh, ended up leaving Fox News, both of us after more than a decade there, in part because we disagreed with the direction that the network was going and some of the things that that they were broadcasting. And, you know, there was a pretty direct financial hit there. So no, th th none of that is tempting. And as I say, we, we sort of built the dispatch, we structured the dispatch in such a way that nobody running the place would ever be tempted to, to, to give in to those, the, the bad market in incentives. And what would remind me of your first question, I'm sorry. My answers are so long, I forget that. No, no, that's great. The first question was just talk a bit about your sense of your original hypothesis after now four years. We're speaking on January 11th, the uh, the dispatch officially launched on January seventh, uh, twenty twenty. Yeah, we we started we started charging people. You're right in in early January. I think January February timeframe of of twenty twenty was when we sort of put up a a paywall and said, "Hey, this stuff isn't going to be free forever." We've certainly made our share of mistakes. There are things I would go back and and do over without question. I would say you know the central hypothesis which in short was people will pay money for good journalism that treats them like smart, capable, curious news consumers. That's just been validated again and again and again, you know, 40,000 times or almost 40,000 times. And it doesn't mean that we're doing everything perfectly. And it doesn't mean that we're constantly, uh, that we're not constantly thinking of ways to improve what we're doing, that we can get, build better products, that can, we can improve the products that we have. We're constantly trying to make the thing better, constantly. We talk about it all the time. And we think we're doing that. But as a whole, I think that original hypothesis has been validated. And we're we're thrilled to have had the kind of unexpected success that we have. You're here, which leads me to my final question. Steve, are you ultimately optimistic or pessimistic about the future of news? <laughs> you, you know there's not going to be an easy answer. <laughs> a yes, it's not a yes or no question. And I don't mean to, to dodge it. I'm both. I'm both. You know, we've seen a lot over the past 10 years that, as I said, the Weekly Standard was shuttered because I think the owner gave in to uh, he, he wasn't willing to 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 let us operate in a principled way and he gave in to the kind of clickbait journalism that I think is is proving unsuccessful and I've seen you know in my experience at at Fox News as well I've seen a lot of people tempted by doing the wrong thing by those by those negative uh, market incentives that you that you mentioned I expect that to continue uh, it's not going to go away but I'm very encouraged 
because of the success of some of the places that I mentioned earlier who are doing real serious good, you know, not just eat your vegetables journalism, but fun and engaging and thoughtful and humorous journalism, you know, on the local level and and also at the national level. And I I think the 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 reality is people people are going to continue to want to understand the world around them. Mm. And as long as that's the case, you know, the, the, it might feel like there are there are more people these days that are are willing to to go down the conspiracy paths and are willing to to engage the the crazy. But I think that's just because they're louder. There are a lot more of us. And and we care about, you know, I care about the future of the United States. I care about truth and facts and I want to learn things. I'm curious. I I, I think there are a lot of people who are like that and and they're our audience. And because I think there are so many of them, it does give me hope that that journalists will continue to provide news and information for that audience. What a great way to wrap up our conversation. Uh, Steve Hayes, editor and CEO of The Dispatch, thanks so much for sharing your time and your perspective with us here at Hub Dialogues. Thanks, Sean. I really, really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on the issues driving the public conversation. Please share this episode of Hub Dialogues with friends and family and leave us a review wherever you get your audio online. You can also go to our website, www.thehub.ca, to sign up for our free weekly newsletter featuring the best of The Hub's journalism and commentary. I'm Roger Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atter Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolovsky Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.